Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, hey, how's it going? It's Ian Foster. This is If and When. This is my podcast. You know that. You just heard the little thing at the beginning or you click the thing on the thing to make this play through your device. Yeah, it's a good intro so far, I think. What do you think? Uh, Glad to have you back listening again, or maybe it's your first time. Welcome. It's been a good summer so far. And we're hitting the road real, real soon around Newfoundland. So if you're in Newfoundland, come see us around the island. We're playing probably within a two-hour vicinity to you almost anywhere on the island, which, if you know the size of Newfoundland, is truly a feat. It's a big place. Um, Things are good with me right now. Making some records in the studio. It seems like I'm perpetually saying that, which is a good thing. I like perpetually making records in the studio, doing a bit more of that in the fall, prepping for a Christmas tour because Christmas tours mean that you book them in the summertime and you don't really want to think about Christmas in the summer, but also work, fun, good times, seeing people, looking forward to that eventually, living in the future. That's a little bit of what I do all the time as a musician. My guest on the show today my friend, Sharon King Campbell. Sharon is someone I've known for a long time. Just the other day, she dropped me a text message to say the sun is out finally for a few minutes, according to my weather app, let's go for a walk. I really appreciate a person who is willing to do that because that's how you survive in Newfoundland. Summer, winter, fall, spring, doesn't matter. That's how you do it. You check the app, you find out when the sun's out, you run outside and it it gets cloudy, you go back inside and feel bad. That's how it works. Anyway, um, we have such great chats. I don't even think about the weather when I'm hanging out with Sharon. And I've worked with her professionally for uh, one of her projects called Give Me Back. It was a play that she wrote about a friend uh, from her childhood who suffered from mental illness and lost that battle. And we talk about a lot of things in this two-part conversation about her growing up and how she came to Newfoundland as a CFA all that stuff, come from away, I should jump in and say, Um, and how she came to love it here and make a creative life here. But we kept coming back to that mental health question. And of course, that's a popular topic these days in the arts in general, and certainly in my little corner I see it the most in in music. There's a lot more dialogue going on now about the struggles that musicians have specifically uh, than there ever was before, certainly that I remember. So I'm really, I'm grateful for that. I've connected with Sharon um, quite explicitly, of course, about that project because I scored that stage play. And of course, as a friend, we've also had those conversations and they just need to keep happening. I'm not sure that there's necessarily ever going to be an answer to what some people go through, what we've all been through to some extent, probably at least once in our lives, some of us many more times. But I think it's important to just keep talking. I mean, honestly, that's one of the reasons for this podcast is these conversations that I'm really grateful for with other creative people that I respect about how they manage their lives. And it's something that I also connect with 
very personally because there was someone in my life that I lost um, that way. And uh, I worked with him years ago. And I'm, I'm actually going to read a post that I wrote on Facebook from January of this year. And uh, for the, the Bell Let's Talk Day. So I think I'll, I'll just read that as a little intro to, to Sharon's episode. And I mean, we get into um, how this connects to, to, to her journey with, with mental illness and depression and, and the people that she's known in her life that have suffered from it a little later in the episode. But I think, I think you'll see the connections. So I'm going to read this post that I wrote about my friend Scott Kelly. I remember being an awkward teenager and going into a music store here in town and looking at the guitars on the wall and dreaming of owning the big guns that seemed out of reach at the time. Imagine having 700 bucks to drop on something like that, let alone three grand or more. I took down a moderately priced one once and started strumming, and one of the guys who worked there was chatting with a few buddies, and he made some snide remark that got a laugh from them at my expense. I left shortly after, feeling pretty shitty. Contrast that to the time I spent at Griffith's Guitar Works, when Scott Kelly worked the other side of the desk. Scott always seemed interested in what I was interested in, even if he actually wasn't. It wasn't fake, though. He just liked people and wanted to know what made them tick. He'd remark on a riff he heard you playing, even if you were playing it incorrectly. But it was always from a positive place, especially if he didn't know you. When you came in, he'd greet you every time and ask you stuff about your life he remembered from the last time. I was a teenager who didn't speak much. It seemed surreal to have somebody care. I saw him do this with quote-unquote famous folks, and folks who might, and did, steal from the store. He'd meet you where you were, a skill most don't even bother trying to develop. I bought my first real electric guitar from there. Sorry, $60 Harmony slash PV Rage combo from the classifieds. I don't count you. My first tube amp, and a bunch of guitar pedals. I still have all of them, and they were all solid choices born from a lot of in-store chats, a lot of take-home and tries, and what would become friendship. Years later, I worked out at Griffiths as a guitar teacher, and Scott was my boss. Then he owned the store, and he was everyone's boss. I was a few years into touring at that point, being away for weeks throughout the year. There was never a heavy hand laid upon me as a contract worker for that store. Instead, he wanted my opinions on how to make the studios better, what gear would be best to order for the rooms, and how best to balance my touring life with my teaching life. I myself expressed concern about the balance a few times, and I remember Scott saying, I hired you because you're out there doing it for real as a musician, and I think it's cool that kids get to learn from someone actually doing it. It was a belief in me that was surprising, and it reminded me of when I was a teenager and he gave a shit about me and what I was doing then. As a comparison, around that same time, I ended up playing a few gigs with the guy from the first music store in this story, who totally loves what I do now. Of course, he doesn't even remember me as that awkward teen he made fun of. He just knows me now because I'm quote-unquote somebody. The difference here is character. Flash forward another year or so, Griffiths sponsored a few tours of mine, first with strings and capos and cables, and eventually a garrison that I last played at my most recent show over Christmas. All Scott's doing. A while later, Griffiths fell on hard times. Near the end, the store wasn't even getting strings in. 
I vividly remember watching one of the employees try to carefully advise a customer to maybe just go up the road to X other music store to get theirs, knowing that the order simply wasn't coming. The customer paused and said, you know, I'd rather just try again in a few days. That was the loyalty that Griffiths inspired, and it was done through the attitude of many of its other employees, but in my opinion, and I think most would agree, was spearheaded by Scott's persistent positivity, even when things were rough. Things got more rough. I was on tour in southern Ontario when a friend called and told me there was a problem and that Scott was missing. The news was as feared from that point, and he had lost his personal version of the battle we have all faced or will face at some point in our lives, for some much more than others. I was touring the evening light at the time, and I started playing a song of mine called Daybreak at the end of each night. I wrote it originally for someone else going through their own sub-basements, but then for a long time, it made me think of Scott. I played it last at St. Mark's in December of this year for him, on that guitar he gave me. A song is just a song, but it's how I remember, and it's often how I think about the things that are too big to really wrap your head around. I both know and don't know how he got there. That's the nature of it. We've been in the basement and in the sub-basement, but there's always another sub-basement. Looking back, it's so simple, though. A good man with a good family who did good things for people. He did good things for me. I don't think I knew just how much at the time or how rare that is. If I could say one more thing to him, it would probably be thanks, and he'd probably honestly wonder what I was thanking him for. That's modesty. That's character. That's loss. Okay. This is the kind of stuff that she and I would talk about on these walks, and we talk about a little bit here. So enjoy my conversation with Sharon King Campbell. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Ian. How's it going? It's good. Good. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Um, I know a lot about you. Yep. Because you're my friend. Yep. But perhaps some people listening to this may not know as much as I do. Um, tell me where you're from. I grew up in Ottawa. Cool. And then I moved to Cornerbrook to go to theater school. And then I tried to move home to Ottawa after I was done, and that was a total disaster, so I moved to St. John's. Why? I, what happened? Oh, I uh, um, I had a friend who committed suicide that summer, uh, so I just spent a bunch of time running around um, and away from that place and all the memories that were connected with it and I moved back to St. John's and I uh, had a bunch of friends from theater school here and so I've been here basically ever since um, and that was in September 2007 so mm. 12 years mm. well 11 and a half years we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second as it relates to a project we worked on together sure um, uh, but, but first off what was the decision to come to Cornerbrook? I was in the year in Ontario, uh, the Ontario curriculum where they eliminated grade 13. So I had, um, I went up to, to grade 13 or the Ontario academic credit year and the class behind me only went to grade 12. So we all graduated at once. Um, and so I was running away from Ontario a little bit. Like I didn't want to be in class of 2007 with um 
with like 700 other acting students. Um, and so I wound up at Grenfell partially because the class sizes were going to be smaller and partially because I'd always kind of liked the idea of living in Newfoundland and they have a semester in Harlow in England, which was totally seductive also because I got to go to London and like watch plays and that was my last semester of school. Right. Yeah. Did you know anybody at all here? Nope. Wow. Okay. Not how, a one. How is it going from Ottawa to Cornerbrook? Uh, the culture shock is very real. Um, mm. And also the preconceived notions about mainlanders that rural Newfoundlanders hold um, is, I would say, equal to the preconceived notions that I held about Newfoundland. <laughs> um, and so we were kind of negotiating actually getting to know each other for real um when i was living in residence we had um i lived with a bunch of people from like the port of port peninsula who told me that i'd never experience a worst a worse winter than the one i was about to experience and it turned out that that winter was the best winter of my life like it was minus 15 all the time and it snowed a lot and i got to go skiing right like, four times a week um because Ottawa winters are much, much worse than that. Um, and yeah, I remember the first time that someone asked me what I was at, I answered the counter because uh, <laughs> I didn't know the expression, you know, like it's right. just that kind of stuff. Um, so the culture shock was really big. Did you get negative things too? Like, did you get people thinking like, I don't know, would there, would, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely did. I got a lot of, why are you here? Really? Um, yeah, not not like you should go home, but definitely why are you here? Because at the time, like 2003 was before the oil boom happened in Newfoundland. And so people were moving away for work. So the idea that someone would choose to come to Newfoundland without any like, quote unquote, reason to move here um, and then stay was like, inconceivable that's that's almost funny to me because it's sort of like when you first said that i did expect it to be like why are you here go home mainlander and it's like no it still came from a place of like self-deprecation it did yeah <laughs> no it, was... it totally did um i did get a lot of like there were a lot of unterrible jokes made around me and stuff and it uh for the first time ever I realized that when people refer to Ottawa in the news, they're talking about the federal government. Um, and that started to really bug me. Um, oh, like it wasn't a town that people were from. It yeah, was a location was, the government's in. It's where the government was. Yeah. Um, and so people associated like Ottawa culture with whatever the federal government was doing at the time, which is, of course, inaccurate. Right. right. Um I got asked a lot why Ottawa is so clean from people who had been to Ottawa. <laughs> you know, it was just a lot of like not really understanding each other. Right. Um, but then there were there was, on the other hand, a bunch of people, especially people about 10 to 20 years older than me, who kind of intentionally because I was so like innocent of Newfoundlandia um, kind of intentionally took me under their wing and fed me Newfoundland food and like took me around to Newfoundland places and like it explained what what are you at means <laughs> and like that kind of stuff uh so I I wound up with like 
some extremely kind friends who just sort of soaked up my auto ness and allowed it to be um like a feature of my history without making it who I am as a person. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I've I've told people um the first time I ever played uh an open letter from the island outside of Newfoundland was in London, Ontario. And I sort of wondered how it would go. And then the first person that came up to me after the show was from Saskatoon. And they said, I totally relate to this song. Yeah. And I thought that was a really weird, if you think of those, it's like this song specifically about Newfoundland, played in Ontario, related to by someone from the prairies. Yeah. But it's the exact same thing of like, you know, we talk about, oh, Newfoundlanders talk about the stereotypes of elsewhere, but every single place, you know, as much as we're like, everyone talks about us this way. And then suddenly the next sentence is something about someone from Quebec or someone yeah. from BC or whatever. Like yeah. it's just the nature of that, I suppose, until you've lived in the culture and get to know some people, you know? Yeah, no, it's definitely true. It's very easy to ignore your own, um, bias is maybe the wrong word, but your own preconceived ideas of places if you haven't been there and, and or met someone from there, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So theater school was, uh, or art school, I should say, was was two years? Four years. Four years. Four okay. years. Yeah. Cool. So four years in Cornerbrook, and then you moved to St. John's? Yep. Okay. Cool. How was that experience? Um, moving to St. John's was awesome, um, in part because I'd had such a bad time in Ottawa. Um, and I, uh, like, I got picked up in my friend's, like, secondhand car where you could almost like see the road passing under uh she picked me up at the airport and uh and she took me directly downtown it was like a thursday night and some friends were playing at cbtg's on george street and we just like immediately went out we like i my suitcases were still in zoe's car and we just went to the band show and like jumped up and down a lot and drank tequila <laughs> and uh and it was just like my my like theater school family had moved to St. John's a lot of them had actually that as their first stop moved to St. John's and not many of us are still here um and yeah it was just like oh right there are people here who love me there's a community here that will support me good great mm-hmm. um I'd also been offered a job in Fogo Island while in Ottawa that I was like on the fence about taking because it meant moving back to Newfoundland. Um, but it was a pretty easy choice once I was in St. John's that I would be working. Right. In Fogo. Yeah. And how many years ago was that? That was 2007. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So what were those first couple of years like? I mean, you mentioned Fogo Island. Mm. When, when did that come into play? Um, so I was hired to be the performing arts consultant for the Shorefast Foundation on Fogo Island in September 2007. Um, We founded the World's End Theatre Company in 2008, and I was the founding artistic director, and I worked for them for four years. I left in 2011. Um, So that was, um, like, kind of unparalleled experience because I was 23 and all of a sudden I was in charge of the best funded, um, theater company in central Newfoundland. And I was in a position to employ artists who are 
always looking for jobs, gig culture, you know this. Um, and so all of a sudden I'm like commissioning plays and I'm uh, setting up dramaturgical workshops with like people who are now governor general award winning playwrights and um, and running an eight week theater festival out of Fogo Island where if I thought I was an alien in Cornerbrook, like just go to Fogo Island and find out. <laughs> but, uh, but the like folks on Fogo Island, I think took to me um, much more in the like this poor mainlander, let's show her how things are actually done in the real world than, um, than the other way. Right. Um, and I was better off telling people I was from Ottawa than that I lived in St. John's, you know, in Fogo Island, which is interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yep. One of the four corners of the world, of course. Yes, of course. According to the Flat Earth Society, mm -hmm. which I have heard that their website once said the Flat Earth Society has chapters all around the globe, which I really appreciate it. That's awesome. <laughs> I have never been to their website. <laughs> But, uh, but yes, the, the Flat Earth Society, as it exists on Fogo Island, is a very tongue-in-cheek organization, and I think would quite enjoy that turn of phrase. I, I think it's tongue-in-cheek in general. At least I hope it's tongue-in-cheek, you know? I mean, yeah. but I guess we can never know for sure. I mean, hey. In this day and age, especially. Yeah. But, uh, that's cool. So, so tell me more about your own creative output during that time. Uh, so during, during my Fogo Island years, I wrote the play that we premiered the festival with. Um, and that was, I think, pretty fundamental to my understanding of what's going on on Fogo Island in general, um, because the piece was about the, um, the National Film Board had done a series of films called the Fogo Process. And their goal was to show people in the various communities on Fogo Island, there were 10 when I was working there. Um, during the Fogo process years, there were more than that. And they would go around and do interviews with just residents of these various communities. And then they'd show the films that they'd made to residents of the other communities so that they had the opportunity to realize that they were all up against the same problems. Um, and because of that process, the... Um, the people of Fogo Island were able to resist resettlement um, in a pretty serious way. They founded a, a non-denominational public high school. It was the first one in Newfoundland. They founded a fisheries co-op. They started a, a long liner um, shipyard. Um, they sort of reorganized the fisheries so that people could fish um, this was well before the moratorium, but the cod stocks were already in decline. And so they were looking at fishing, um, just other, uh, sea life. So, uh, there's the, the Fogo Island fisheries co-op, um, does sea cucumber and shellfish and that kind of stuff. Um, and now they still do that. Mm. Um, and that high school still exists. There's a central healthcare center <coughs> that exists because of that kind of era in the, uh, the early seventies. So I wrote a piece about that. Um, that was pretty successful. Uh, and we did, we did it with 
um, all of the performers were local to Fogo Island, um, and that continued throughout all four years of the the company's existence. Uh, and then we hired professional um, we hired professional director, professional designers, and management team, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so that was really interesting. After the first year, we started. I commissioned, there were five in total, five plays commissioned over the four years, all from Newfoundland playwrights, mostly playwrights under 35, which was pretty cool. Uh, And we did a bunch of like storytelling workshops and there's still a storytellers guild on Fogo Island now. Um, We collaborated with the National Film Board when they opened their first English language e-cinema in Canada. They did that with the Shorefast Foundation. And we collaborated with the National Arts Centre English Theatre and um, the National Theatre School to bring the ARC, which is a... It was a project where um, two... In pairs of two. So there were the NTS students were each paired up with a professional theatre artist, and then they all did an intensive study of... uh, playwright who in Fogo Island was Ibsen, Henrik Ibsen. Um, so we, we spent three weeks kind of immersed in Ibsen's writing and the, the writing that was happening it like at the same time in the same area mm-hmm. as what Ibsen was writing, which was very, very interesting. Um, yeah. And, uh, and we ran for a little while, there was a youth, uh, like a youth program. Um, drama classes and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I, I'm, I know there's there's more, but I think this is an interesting spot to, uh, I guess, make this point. You know, let's, let's take that particular production that you just discussed mm. that you wrote for Fogo Island. Um, we're going to talk about Give Me Back in a second, but cool. as I referenced earlier, you know, it's it's related to the suicide of your friend in Ottawa. And then I've seen, I guess, your most recent one-person show, original. Mm -hmm. Uh, Three of those, I can say, I mean, I haven't seen the first one we just discussed for Fogo, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and say all vastly different. Uh, Yep. As much as possible. Yeah, very, very Um, different. Talk to me about that. I mean, in terms of what you're interested in working on, are there any connecting themes at all? Is it literally the theme is that you love working on different things. Like, what's <laughs> what's the story? Um, I think the theme is character, like, character-driven social justice theater. Like, as much as I, I shy away from that when I'm talking about it in grant applications or um, marketing situations, like, I, I write plays that are intended to bring marginalized stories to the forefront um when i was writing the uh the play on fogo island which is called fighting fire with snow um it was at a time when fogo island was looking at amalgamating the municipality so all of those communities now um are administrated by the municipality of fogo island um And that was a touchy subject at the time. And I didn't know 
excuse me, I didn't know the people on Fogo Island very well when I was writing it, but I it was obvious that there was a connection between this process that had been gone through in the late 60s and early 70s and what they were talking about now in terms of pooling resources and everything else. And um, and so I, I wrote that story at that time. Um, Give Me Back was... Uh, something I had I had to write. I think that there's some conventional wisdom in the playwriting community anyway that you're going to write about the worst thing that ever happens to you. You you always are. You're going to write about it. It's going to turn up in everything. Um, and so that one was a very conscious decision that this wasn't just a play about um, about a a young man who is suffering from mental illness, it had to be a play that very specifically said that the stigma around mental illness is detrimental to people experiencing it. Um, It was built as a stigma fighter. And uh, original is a feminist work, um, an extremely outspoken kind of angry feminist work um and in 2018 um when it premiered you know donald trump was president and i if he hadn't been such an outspoken misogynist and still got elected um that play might be pretty different but i think that there is something to the um the the tone of what's happening in the world is going to influence the way that scripts come out of me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And any art, I think that's, that's of its time. Certainly. Like, I mean, an interesting comparison of those two is I feel so worth, of course, saying on microphone, I did the score for give me back. That's that's, Thank goodness. (laughs) That's why we're, you know, talking about it in the, the, the way we are. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I feel personally like that the conversation around mental illness has changed even in the last few years since you wrote that play. Would you agree? Definitely. Yeah. 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 And how so? How do you feel that it has? Um, I think it's changed for the better in terms of people being open about what they're experiencing. Um, the problem we're having now is that if once the stigma falls away then all of a sudden we have 10 times as many people trying to access the same overburdened structures that exist to support people with mental illness. Mm. So now the mental illness struggle is um, becoming about getting better hospitals, getting more trained workers into the field, um, better socialized medicine in terms of like you can't, you can't see a therapist under a provincial um, health plan. Mm-hmm. It has to be a psychologist, sorry, a psychiatrist. It has to be a doctor who prescribes medication, and it has to be um, as a result of a referral. And um, that is just a, such a long process that oh. people who are in crisis, um, it's, almost, it's almost ineffectual. So I'd love to talk to you about the arc of that if you're up for it, because I find um, we see it play out really quickly across social media now, you know, the sort of arc of a revolution, you know, if there's a mental health 
revolution in the form of lifting the stigma. Mm-hmm. There's lots of good that comes from that. There's some potential bad, I think, yep. that can come from that. Um, and I think it's really interesting in relation to your play because, of course, your play, I think, is a very, you know, again, you know, person. I am connected to the, the project, but I think it's a very nuanced, mm-hmm. real approach to that mm-hmm. that maybe is not possible in a revolutionary moment of it happening in the way that it has to play out on social media when it comes to people talking about awareness or yeah. I don't know. I'm interested in your thoughts on, on how that works. Well, I think that the way that we process information now um, is so different than the way that we processed it even five years ago that we are used to seeing things only on the surface um, because we, there's just so much information coming at us all the time that we don't have the opportunity or the inclination to look at anything um, deeply unless it makes us super angry. Um, and then in the midst of trying to compose a like rebuttal, we actually do our research about it. Um, like those are those are the ways that we, interact with information now and um and i think that we need art um possibly more than ever because well the art form that i work in mostly in theater is able to offer a whole picture of a person um and so what we're talking about with give me back like you get to see jonathan you understand what's going on in his life you see him as a person and not just as a person with early stage schizophrenia. Um, it is more nuanced than what you're used to seeing on social media. Um, but that's part of the, uh, the movement as well. The current social justice movement is that we now refer to people like persons with disabilities, people of color, like the people is first on purpose, um, because we have to remember that all of these people are humans, whole humans with their own identity, and then their obstacle comes second, right? Mm. People with mental illness, not the mentally ill, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, um, it's part of the movement, but we lose the nuance because of the, just the sheer volume of information constantly barraging us. Yeah, I think about, um, I think about the posts that we often see on social media where someone says um, something to the effect of, you know, if you ever need to talk, yeah. we're, we're here, yeah. you know? And on the surface, obviously, that's a nice sentiment. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if it's a little bit like sometimes that can feel like, well, I did my part. I posted that. Yeah. That statement. Yeah. And, and I feel bad almost saying that because that feels a little cynical i guess sure and probably a few other things as well yeah but it, it is an interesting thing to think about because on the one hand i think what it's doing ultimately is it's it's trying to lift the veil of it being a taboo subject like yes. it's it's people it, whether they're consciously doing that or not the fact that more and more people are just saying that means that they have given at least some thought to the idea that that's okay that that's a real thing yeah i think that the challenge is 
that I don't think anyone actually in the position to need help is going to go, well, let me scroll through my Facebook feed. And, and see who's posted that. And see who's, you know. It is, and and it's true that, like, one of the most common symptoms of a mental health crisis is that you pull away from people. Um, so even the people that you would, that you know you can rely on, it's just too much work to call. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's certainly better than nothing to say like always here to talk and that in a preventative way is very useful. Mm-hmm. When someone is in crisis, like we just hope that that person has a good enough support network that they notice when they don't show up to social engagements. They notice when they start missing work so that someone who has a spare key goes over and checks on them. Mm-hmm. Like it's that it becomes necessary to um, to do the reaching out from the place of uh, mental stability. Which is what I loved about Give Me Back because it's about two people who are already friends. Yeah. And going through the things that friends – you know, inevitably, all of our experiences individually with this sort of thing are going to be that kind of intimate experience. Yeah. It's not going to be, I'm, you know, the Batman of mental illness, and I'm going to, like, swoop in. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> funny image. But, uh, right? but, like, the idea that you're going to be a superhero and, like, swoop into somebody as if, like, you'd swoop into someone getting mugged yeah. and, like, save them. It's going to be, like, you're, you are connected already to someone who uh, always has been or begins to go through this, and yeah. you're going to go on that journey with them. And yeah. it's going to be a lot of emotions. Like, I mean, your character is angry at times oh, yeah. and give me back, you yeah. know, the friend. Yep. You know, and I think that that's a really important thing to show. Yeah, I think, I mean, that the scene in which she is angry is um, is a scene that I wept while crying, <laughs> while uh, writing, because it's, uh, she, he's, he's attempted suicide and survived, and she's furious, um, and in real life, the suicide attempt that I found out about was successful, um, and so I was angry, but I didn't have a person anymore to express that anger to. I think, like, in situations like that, whatever you're feeling is what you're feeling. And it's not, um, it's not socially acceptable, I think, to be angry at dead people. But it doesn't change that you are angry at dead people. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So I think it like that one was just that one just came right out of my heart, mm-hmm. that scene. Um, mm-hmm. But it is you're right when people talk about it. It's the scene that that rings true for people that like you would show up to someone's hospital bed and throw their suicide note at them and, you know, swear at them mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah, it's uh it turns out that that's something that other people also have experienced, you know? Sure. And, um, I think yeah. it rings true on a deeply personal level. I think yeah. any time, you know, uh, various people I've known, myself included, whenever we've been in a really dark place, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty. I mean, it seems like you look back and, like, if you've ever had anything remotely close to the darkest of thoughts, yeah. it seems like if you make it through, you often will look back and go, God, what was I thinking? Uh-huh. Like that's the overarching feeling of someone personally going through it, let alone the anger of the friend who's like, 
able to be removed enough to go, seriously, what the fuck were you thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? It's true. And also that that friend, if if someone is under, like, if someone has a chronic mental illness, that friend has probably been through quite a lot already, right? Like, the investment of time and, and like, emotional resource into... Um, helping a friend or like relation with severe mental illness not just continue to live but like continue to have a life worth living um is it's intense it's a lot and so the uh the threat to that they can just decide that none of that is worth anything is um it's very personal right yeah. it, you take it very personally when that happens um yeah and so i think that yeah you're right it's important to have anna the character in that show um being you know the um what is the word i'm looking for the person who is not suffering from mental illness um to just be our window into what it's like to actually take care of someone with a chronic mental illness to be going through it for you know the foreseeable future that there's um you you live with mental illness often mm -hmm. like much much more often than that you recover from it completely you always have to maintain it um and mental health is something that everyone, regardless of whether they've had a diagnosis or not, needs to be maintaining. Um, it's a lifelong thing. Mm -hmm. So it involves lifelong commitment of resource. Okay, that's the end of part one. Part two is next Thursday. Tune in again. Please like and subscribe and rate this podcast on your podcast app of choice. It helps me and it means that the supercomputer that you're keeping in your pocket will let you know when future episodes come out. See you next time.